Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the inner workings of the creative process. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. None of us gets through the day without encountering anger somewhere, be it at work, at home, on the road, or even inside ourselves. Ryan Martin is a professor of psychology at the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay, and he specializes in anger. He's written a book, Why We Get Mad, How to Use Your Anger for Positive Change, and given a TEDx talk, but a lot of people have encountered him through his Anger Professor account on TikTok, where he shares interesting new research and offers advice on how to handle anger and how not to. In our conversation, Ryan and I discussed how his fascination with anger began, the positive sides of anger, how anger can fuel creativity, and how we can unintentionally sap that fuel. Ryan also tells me how he came to be curious about curiosity, which inspired him to revamp the way he teaches. I think you'll really enjoy my conversation with Ryan Martin. Welcome to the podcast, Ryan. I'm excited to talk to you today. I am excited to be here. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. So I am curious because you are not an obvious creative person. You're not, you know, a painter or a musician or whatever. Um, I'm curious to know what creativity looks like for you and how it came out before you started studying psych and and after. So I'll let you decide where the best place is to start with that. Yeah, so it's, I love that prompt and I'm glad you actually asked it the way you did because I've been thinking about it a lot since we, we were talking about doing this and since you, you told me, um, you know, that you wanted me on the show, I've been thinking about kind of creativity and my history with it. Um, as a psychologist, because I will admit that, you know, when I when I first started studying psychology, you know, one of the first classes you take is research methods. And one of the first things you have to do in a research methods class is learn to write a research paper. And I don't know how many of those you have read, but they are pretty formulaic and not very fun, right? And so mm-hmm. it's, it's very much a, you know, that they have four parts. They are intro, method, results, discussion, uh, and you just you you just follow that format. And really good for science. Really good to read. Not really good to to write, uh, as far from my perspective. Um, because and I remember thinking, well, this is this isn't fun. Whereas this isn't the kind of writing I like. And so I. Um, then I got in that same methods class, I started thinking and learning about some um, famous studies and started paying attention to some really interesting and clever methods that were used to answer big questions. And I, I all of a sudden sort of found myself thinking, oh, okay, this is where the creativity is. This is where the fun is in psychology where you get to new do new things and try new things and, and come up with innovative ways to answer questions. And I all of a sudden got excited uh, about that, whereas I hadn't necessarily been before. And I think that's, to me, when it comes to psychology, that is where I, I have really sort of found um, a lot of, a lot of the, the, the creative elements that I, that I really felt like I needed. And then when I started teaching, I think that opened up a whole new avenue for me, thinking about all of the different ways that I can kind of reach students and, and bring creativity into the classroom. 
um, to try and reach students in new ways. And there, it, was, it was really, really freeing, I think, at a moment when I sort of started to realize, and it, takes, it took me time, and in some ways I sort of feel like maybe too much time to kind of hit a point where I felt like I could, I didn't have to do things the way everyone else did. And I didn't have to teach the way I was taught. And I didn't actually even have to, you know, going back to those research papers, I don't have to, to publish the way other people publish. I can, I can disseminate research in different ways, and hence TikTok and hence YouTube and Twitter and all sorts of other things. I can, I can find other ways to get the word out. And so, because I actually, in so many ways, I've always been drawn to creative things as a consumer. I love movies. I love TV. Um, I, I love reading, though. I, I think um, it, it took me longer to be really interested in reading fiction um, it, than it did other people. Um, but I, I've always been drawn to the arts and to creative activities that way, but never as like someone who did those things. And then I think um, at a certain point, I started to become more drawn to the idea of doing them. Um, but finding uh, ways to do them in my own field. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of wondering somewhat unseriously, you know, like does TikTok count as a publication credit for a university professor? <laughs> you know? Well, well, here's a piece of, because I would argue that, I, I don't know that it needs to count the same way um, or that it should count the same way, but I would, I would leave people with this piece of information. Um, the mode for the number of people who read a research paper once it's published is less than 10. And so when it comes to now, do I think TikToks should, be in, should count as much as a research paper? No. Um, but when you acknowledge that you are reaching way, way, way more people and disseminating the work in a much, much more meaningful way, I'm not sure why we don't factor that in a little better into people's what I would call scholar, scholarly productivity, that there's a lot of good work being done there. Uh, and, and not just TikTok, but a host of other avenues. I mean, we could, we could have said this about blogs. We could have said this about Twitter. We could say this about a billion other places. There's a lot of good work happening where people are sharing valuable information and it's being consumed by people in meaningful ways. I don't know why why we wouldn't count that. Yeah, I would agree with that. It seems ridiculous to me not you know, not to take it at all seriously. You know, like mm -hmm. you say it doesn't necessarily land in the same category as I've done this study and here's all of the evidence of what I've mm -hmm. found. But it, you know, I mean, you do have a, a really fascinating level and type of engagement on your TikTok posts that mm -hmm. you know, I'm thinking in particular a month or so ago when you were doing the series about catharsis and how catharsis is really actually not good for you. And the number of people who kept saying, but I do this all the time. And, and, you know, it was kind of like fascinating to watch the, the interplay between here's all the data in this series of videos and here's all the people, you know, some people going, wow, I never thought about that. I'm going to do something different next time. And other people just right. hanging on to the thing that they know, which, 
is is probably a whole other discussion for a whole other podcast, but we can delve in there a little bit if you want. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's the thing that's really, it, it's really interesting because what many of my colleagues would say, and, and they are partially right with what, about this, they would say, right, but, but social media, blogs, regardless, they don't have peer review. And I would say, sure, they don't, but go to my TikToks and tell me my peers aren't reviewing me. Right. Go go read the comments and tell me I'm not hearing other perspectives. I'm not here. And and they may they understandably would say, wait, but those aren't necessarily experts. And they're not, but they're still my peers. They're still a meaningful group of people sharing their perspective on what I have to say in a way that's actually, I think, been more valuable to me as a scholar than a lot of the the review I've gotten from other scholars um that i'm i the conversations i've had with people over tiktok have been really enlightening they ask questions my peers quote unquote have never thought to ask um they get me to engage and think about things in ways i've i've not thought about them before so again is it the same no is it valuable absolutely yeah and and it's not like you're specializing in something that most people never encounter. You know, you're not studying quantum right. mechanics, which would be a little bit different. I mean, anger is a thing that we all encounter probably every day, possibly multiple times a day. So we all have our own experience with it. And and yeah, I'm not surprised that people have said things that you've found valuable. Is there a particular example of that that comes to mind? You know, I think there's, there's a couple things that jump out at me. One is, I, I think I've really um, become interested and more aware of trauma and how people define it and how people think about it. Um, that's been something that is, if, if I look for themes in responses to what I've, I've posted, um, things about trauma, I've really, I hear a lot of comments about that. And so it's sort of a wake up call to me, just the number of people who've endured uh, really, really challenging upbringings at various times. And, and that's, uh, that's been important. I think the other thing is that, you know, people ask me questions all the time. And a lot of the time, I don't know the answer. And so I go find out, you know, and I and I consult the research and I, and I look up. And so people will say, hey, what's the link between ADHD and anger? And, you know, I, maybe people don't know this, but I don't actually have that information just stored in my head anywhere. I have access to a huge database and I know the, who the scholars are who, who might study such things. And so I go look it up and, and review that stuff and, and share it. And, but those questions that they're asking, the reason I don't know the answer is because I've never thought to ask those things before. And so when people, um, when people bring them to my attention, it really gets me sort of intrigued and thinking about it and wanting to sort of look it up and learn more about it and hear stories about it. So, which, which I should add, um, if there's an emotion that I'm as interested in as anger, it's probably curiosity. <laughs> and so, um, there's, there is a lot, in fact, I'm doing a talk tomorrow on that very thing. So, um, but it's, you know, there's a lot to be said for the, for the value of curiosity and, and, and what it brings to us. I was just about to say, you're obviously following your curiosity, which is perfect. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's yep. great. And now I want to know what the connection is between ADHD and anger and probably all sorts of other things that I never thought to wonder about. So my evening is probably booked with Google now. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yep. 
<laughs> so I am, I am curious to know how it is that you came to specialize in anger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, I can really point to two reasons. Um, one is, you know, there was this sort of running joke in my house when I was growing up about the Martin temper um, that, you know, especially the, the I, I have uh, three siblings and two parents and, um, and, you know, the idea, I have two brothers specifically who people used to joke all the time about the Martin boys having a temper, my dad and my brothers and I. And, you know, I honestly don't know how true that actually is in some ways now that I've sort of paid more attention to it. Um, but I just kind of, I grew up in what, what people might consider kind of an angry household. And it, and it's funny because it's a very loving household. We got along really well. We still get along really well. Um, I see him in a few weeks. Uh, but, you know, there was, there were, there were angry outbursts every now and then, not usually like directed at each other, but honestly directed outwardly. Um, it was just oftentimes, you know, my dad in particular had a temper. And so I, I've just, was interested in it even from the time I was a kid, I think, and thinking about anger. The other more specific thing though, was that in college, I worked at an adolescent shelter. Um, so I was a criminal justice, I studied criminal justice and psychology. And so I worked in the juvenile justice system for a few years in college at this shelter that um, was, uh, for quote unquote at risk adolescents. And that's not a term I necessarily like because I feel like it puts the onus of responsibility on them. It's not their fault they were at risk. They were in horrible situations. Um, and, and they were victims of poverty and, and uh, poor parenting and racism and sexism and a host of other things. But they, there was what a salient experience for almost all of them was this inability to control their anger. There were just outbursts all the time. And, um, and I got really interested in, I actually went to graduate school because at the time I was thinking, I wanna be a therapist and I wanna work with kids. And this, and this in particular, I wanna work with kids who really desperately need help. And these seemed like the kids I wanted to work with. And I thought, I, I wanna help them learn to manage their anger. And it's funny because in retrospect, I, I've realized you know, that the kids weren't the, the problem. Um, I mean, yes, they could have benefited from better managing their anger, but, but they had a lot to be angry about and they were in just the, some of the worst circumstances imaginable. Um, but I also, you know, I, I kind of went to graduate school thinking this is what I want to do and this is what I want to study. And I started working with a guy named Eric Dolan at the University of Southern Mississippi, who was a new, uh, a relatively new faculty member when I got there, who was also studying anger. Um, and it was, it, I just became totally enthralled with it at the time, um, and, and did my thesis on it and my dissertation and a bunch of other papers when I was there. Um, and then just continued to, I kind of had to take a year off when I did an internship, um, at UW-Madison and that was actually sort of hard for me. I didn't get to teach or do research during that time. Um, but I, as soon as I came to UW Green Bay, I, I got back to really studying it um, and, and writing about it as much as I could. That's very interesting. And I, I love that, you know, you're pointing out that it's not those kids' faults and that so many of them are dealing with so much mm -hmm. stuff. It's so easy to 
label people without thinking twice about anything you can't actually see on the surface. You know, what's really interesting about it, um, I don't think this is too much of a tangent, but I, I there was a day at the shelter where you, you I'd worked there for years, right? And so I was pretty immersed in, in things and it was, I think I lost a sight of the fact that it was an it was an awful place. It was a necessary place. I mean, it 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 was the alternatives were jail or homelessness or a host of other things. So it was not it was necessary, but it was like every other institution. So many other institutions. It was underfunded, and um, I I kind of lost sight of how bad it was um, for the kids going there. And so the kids left for the day because we were giving tours to people who were interested and wanted to know more about the facility. And I brought my mom over and my mom walked through and she stopped and turned to me and she had kind of a tear in her eye. And she said, so this is it, huh? And I said, yeah. And she's like, this is awful. And I think that was like sort of a wake up call because my mom is not someone who is by any means sheltered. She is not someone who isn't aware of how bad things can be. And so the recognition, it was just a reminder of, Oh dear God, what would it be like to be a 14-year-old and have to leave your home um, or, or or whatever place you've been living and come here? And how scary that must be and how hard that must be. And it, it served as this moment of, yeah, I probably should have known that, but uh, and I did, but I'd sort of forgotten in since I was there every day. Yeah, we adapt to things and don't notice stuff like that so easily. Right. Wow. Wow. And it's it's only worse now that I have kids that are about the age that could go there. <laughs> you know, that I, uh, it, I mean, it's, it's in a different city, but once you start to think like, this is the age of some of those kids, that this is, you know, and, and just you start to think about what that must have been like and uh, for kids, how scared they must have been. I, I hate it. Yeah, no, that's that's rough. So I have this sort of multi-part question in my head now, and I'm going to throw it at you and hope that it makes some kind of sense. And if not, we'll break it down. But I'm thinking about that. And I'm thinking about how most of us think of anger as a negative thing. And I'm Mm -hmm. also looking at the title of your book, which is Why We Get Mad, How to Use Your Anger for Positive Change. And I'm wondering... And, you know, I know when you were working there, you probably weren't at the stage where you were the anger expert that you are now. So I don't know if you ever managed to help any of those kids use their anger for positive change. But I'm also wondering what you have to say about this idea that anger is a negative thing and how it might not be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I think the, the my argument, so I'm going to back up a little bit question-wise, but I, I will get there. Go I for promise. it. And but my argument around anger is that it is not inherently bad. It is inherently good in the sense that it exists in us to alert us to the fact that we have been wronged or treated unfairly or aren't having our goals met. Um, and so in some ways, you know, it, it's sort of, I mean, it's a lot like other emotions like fear or sadness, which alert us to danger or loss. Um, and in some ways, it's not that dissimilar, and psychologists are going to freak out when I say this, but it's not that dissimilar to something like thirst or hunger, which alert us to the fact that we need water or food, right? It's, it's, it's a motivator. It's something in our body that just says, hey, things aren't right. You need things to be different. 
And in that sense, it energizes us to confront those things and to deal with those things. And so, you know, that, that doesn't know, just like fear or sadness or thirst or hunger, those things can become a problem once you're experiencing them too intensely or not managing them very well or, or and so on. They can become bad, right? We all know what maladaptive fear or maladaptive sadness look like. Um, and the same thing can happen with anger. And so when I think about those kids and whether or not I, I, I doubt that I, I, I'm sure I helped them. I have no doubt that I helped them. I don't know that I helped them figure out how to channel their anger into positive pro-social stuff. I just don't, I don't think I was ready to do that yet. Um, and I'm not a hundred percent sure they were ready to, to mm. learn that yet. And some of them I didn't actually get very much time with. They were there anywhere for one day to 90 days. Right. So, um, but I do think that, I mean, I can tell you that experience and having worked there has motivated me to want things to be different and to work towards things being different. Um, and I do think that those experiences can absolutely motivate people. I mean, I think in some ways, I think that having worked there is the source of a lot of anger for me because I think about how just fundamentally unfair the world has been for to some people and, and the way in which they suffer it, it, it inspires me to want to things to be different in a host of ways and to want to work towards things being different in a host of ways i don't know if i got all the parts of the question or not i think so i mean yeah okay. you, you kind of led into the whole idea of how to use your anger in a positive way so good good yeah yeah, I, I actually, I found this quote last night and I was curious to see what you thought of it because it really struck me when I read it. It's from the Irish poet and philosopher John O'Donohue and it says, let the flame of anger free you of all falsity. Huh. So let me ask you, start, I, whenever I hear quotes, it always takes me a moment to sort of process what it means. So and Tell I don't have it. any context for that or anything. It was okay. just a quote on a quote page. So I, yeah. Free you from falsity. I think that's the part I'm struggling with as I think about it. I, I think, I mean, I, so a lot of people like to use, I'm going to think out loud here. Sure. Uh, so a lot, a lot of people like to use um, steam as a metaphor for anger, right? So they like to talk about anger as, as steam, right? And hence the whole catharsis metaphor, right? We're pressure cookers and we got to release it or else we explode. And I get that. Uh, I get where that comes from. Um, I do think it begs the question sometimes, well, what are we releasing? Like, what is the thing that's actually leaving us? Um, I prefer a metaphor of fuel, um, in the sense that I, I like to think of, of, of anger being a fuel that energizes us to do things and to respond to, uh, to an unfair world. I think that, like any fuel, though, it's volatile and, we, um, and it can explode. Um, and it can, we can do bad things with it and we can hurt ourselves or hurt others if we're not careful. So when I think back to that quote, it's the word spark that I'm... I'm particularly intrigued by this idea that anger serves as this spark, this 
this fuel um, that allows us to um, to respond to to respond to injustice, to respond to um, the, our goals being blocked. I think the part I'm not sure what it means is the frees us from falsity. Are you able to elaborate on that part or what that means to you at all? Well, as you've been talking, I've just been kind of wondering, you know, kind of thinking of whether or not this is accurate. I don't know, but you're the expert, so you can tell me. Um, you know, those moments of like really, really righteous anger when you realize that something is really wrong, that you've been wronged, that there's some grave injustice, that something that is just burning you up. And I'm wondering, you know, how much potential there is for that to be a clarifying experience that does show you truth versus how much that kind of anger can influence you to think that something's true when it isn't. Right. So, well, this is, there is a, a gajillion dollar question embedded in all of this that we're talking about. One that I actually, I do not have an answer to, and I'm not sure it can be answered, but I'm, I've been intrigued by it for decades. And that is, are we ourselves when we're really, really angry? Um, because you will hear people say, particularly couples, I didn't mean that I was just really mad. And I always wonder, didn't, I mean, it did come from you, right? Mm -hmm. did, you know, and so is it that you didn't mean it? Is it that you said something you don't actually believe? Or is it that the filter was removed and you said things you wouldn't normally say? And I honestly don't know what the answer to that question is. Um, I don't know. There are times where I think the answer is no, the, the anger was a filter. Excuse me, that the, you, the, you lost the filter because of your anger and you said something you wouldn't normally say, but you did believe it. There are times where I think, no, they said something they don't really believe just because they wanted to hurt someone. And mm. I don't know... I don't know which is true, it, to be honest with you, but it's a, it is a fascinating question to me. And it, 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 part of the reason I don't think I have an answer to it is because I think that's the point where we've really left psychology and entered philosophy. Mm. And um, other than, than, I guess, arguing, you know, part of the problem here is it might be that there is no sort of true us like they, you know there's there's lots we can say about personalities and whether or not behaviors are stable across situations and so on but so it might be that that that's part of the problem here is that who we are is not a stable thing that, that who we are in one circumstance is different than who we are in another but yeah so i'm on board with that interpretation the idea that sometimes anger can allow you to see things really clearly it can also um i think it can uh it can allow you to be honest in ways that you aren't normally. Can you say some more about that? Yeah, well, I think it's what I was just saying about, you know, the filter mm -hmm. coming off that, that, you know, when you're angry, you, you sometimes are willing to tell people things you wouldn't normally be willing to say. I get, look, I'm, I'm really mad. And so I unloaded on my boss and I told them all the things that have been stewing inside for so long and that the truth, the, you know, came out. Um, and, and it was my anger that got me there. Um, so I do think that there's a side of it that could be, that could lead to just a new level of honesty for people. 
And now I'm wondering how much anger comes from feeling like you can't normally tell the truth in a situation like that. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I mean, I think, you know, this is where that, that steam metaphor works nicely for people is the idea that sort of injustice after injustice after injustice, little ones build up inside to the point that you just feel like you can't take it anymore. And, you know, I, um, I think that that is a real, I think that's a real thing. And I think that people feel just the burden of stuff, of life stuff, or not being able to say things or being in a situation where they feel devalued and not being able to, to talk about it or share it or deal with it. And then they just someday, sometimes I think it can lead to exploding. Sometimes I think they just sort of suffer in silence in ways that, that hurt. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as you're talking now, I'm thinking about the line between frustration and anger. Do you draw a big distinction between those two or are they pretty much oh, the same thing? I do and I don't. You know, so when I think about anger, I think there's kind of two big overlapping reasons why people get angry, maybe three sometimes, but um, it, it, there's, there's the unfairness and injustice piece. There's um, poor treatment, which is very much going to overlap with that, but it's a little, there is not necessarily injustice. Like if someone's mean to you or cruel to you, um, there's that. And then I think a third reason, and this is probably the most different from those other two is having your goals blocked that I'm trying to do this thing and something's interfering. And that I think is sort of often described as frustration, right? My attempts to do this were frustrated. And so I, I think that that feels different enough that we could consider, consider it a, a separate thing. Um, the problem is that it, I do think it also overlaps with those other things. I mean, part of the reason why I feel angry is because, uh, you know, one of my goals is to live in a certain kind of world that is a just world, right? And and I see that goal being blocked all the time. And that's one of the reasons I get angry. And so those two things clearly overlap for me because justice is an important part of what I care about and what I value. That makes sense. Yeah. So when you're talking about your goals being blocked, I'm also thinking of that in terms of, you know, I'm a creativity coach. Creative people get blocked all the time. And I have heard good arguments in the past, or at least they seem like good arguments to me, saying that the more you complain about whatever's going on with you, whether it's your painting isn't working or, you know, your kid's not feeding your dog, you know, whichever, the the less likely you are to take positive action based on that frustration because you're venting enough steam that that fuel mm. is is not as strong. I don't know if you have any view on that, but regardless, I'm curious to know how how you would address that frustration of, I really want to be a writer, but there are no words coming out in a positive way. Yeah, that's interesting. So I have been told... Or I've seen some research that's, and this is a variation of what you just said, but similar enough that I think it relates. I've seen some research saying that telling people your goals makes you less likely to achieve them. 
Um, and it's and one of the reasons for that is because you get all of the joy of having completed it just by telling someone. And then you don't actually feel the desire, the motivation to complete it anymore. And so, you know, if you say, hey, I'm going to write a book and everyone says, oh, that's great. Congratulations. And then you say you've gotten all the fun of doing that. And then you don't necessarily actually feel compelled to do the thing. Wow. And so, yeah. So, um, so a lot of times uh, people will say, you know, if you've got goals, just keep them to yourself for a little while and, and, you know, don't, don't share them. Um, there's a really, I wish I knew it and could just uh, pull the name out, but there's a good Ted talk on this actually, if, um, you can check out. And I think if you just search for what I just said, you'd probably find it. Okay. Uh, we'll find it. But, um, oh, no, it's- yeah. Um, so, but I can see how that could be true with anger too. Right. And now this is the part where I'm really extrapolating, but that if you, if you're frustrated and you complain, it feels like you've solved the problem. And instead of, and, and you let some of that fuel go, essentially, you've you spent some of that fuel instead of directing it towards solving whatever the problem is, you know, and that, and using the fuel that way. Um, so what would I say uh, to people who, who have, who are stuck? Um, and, you know, this is going to be really, really, if this is going to feel really obvious and something a lot of people have done, but I would say, sit down, set a timer and just start writing and don't feel like it needs to be perfect. Don't even feel like it needs to be something you're going to include. Just sit down and start. And, um, I think that that I, I do think that a lot of people just get stuck because they feel like what they put down is sort of set in stone when it's not. It's going to be changed a gajillion times between when you first uh, wrote it down and 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 when it's finally published. And so just start and and then celebrate the fact that you spent 15, 30 minutes, whatever, celebrate the fact that you did that and be proud of the fact that you did that. It's honestly, it's the same thing I would tell someone who was trying to start working out for, you know, just set a timer, give yourself, you know, decide you're going to do this thing and then celebrate the fact that you did it, even if the end result isn't exactly what you were hoping for. Well, I think if you ever get tired of, of focusing on anger, you could have a side business in creativity coaching because that's actually very similar to what I would tell someone. I would say, spend five minutes. Don't have to do more than five minutes. The only thing that I would add is be prepared for it to be bad or even deliberately make it bad. Interesting. Because people get so hung up on it needing to be perfect that it stops them. Whereas right. when you give people permission to be bad, they just, some people can't figure out how to be bad, hmm. which, you know, basically it just means stop worrying about it and write whatever. But if you're trying deliberately to be bad, then you have permission to kind of get goofy and weird and do totally strange things and it frees everything up. But that also brings me to something else. You know, the people who can't 
who are stuck in the perfectionism, who are, you know, convinced that every single thing that they write is terrible. And Lord knows everybody who's ever written or painted or composed music mm -hmm. or whatever, picked up an instrument for the first time, Lord knows, um, has been bad at it. You know, nobody knows how to do any of these things the minute that they're born. But, but there are some people who can just take that, oh, this is terrible. And instead of laughing at it the way I've learned to, thank the gods, um, take it out on themselves that it's horrible. Right. What, what do you, what can you tell us about turning anger inwards that way and taking it out on ourselves and maybe how not to do that? Yeah, this is the, um, uh, there's a couple of different things I would say is, you know, so when, when people talk about, um, I like to think about flow and, um, you know, and the, the flow being sort of that state of happiness people can get into um, that where they're really in a zone. Um, and part of why that happens is we can think about what, what they, what's been referred to as a, a frustration channel, right? And so it's, um, you know, if you think about sort of things, if, if, um, if things get too, if things are too easy, for you, well, then it's not fun and you don't want to do it. But if they get too hard, then it's also not fun and you don't want to do it. This is why this is why what makes video games sort of the perfect thing for to keep people going is because they get harder as you get better, right? And so they, um, and so uh, you know, when I think about this, is a great example of how anger or sort of frustration can kind of move you along in that in that direction towards progress because if it's if there's no, if there's no frustration there if there's nothing challenging about it if there's no level of Oof, this is hard then um then people give up early because it gets boring um it's funny when i was in graduate school i played racquetball with a friend like five times a week i'd never played racquetball prior to that that experience and I've never played racquetball since but for four years I played about four or five times a week with the same exact person and the reason is because we were perfect opponents for each other it, we were we were right in that we got better as we got better we were right in that frustration channel quote unquote for those four years and then I've never been interested in playing ever again and I don't think he has either and it's it's sort of the same concept um so the, uh, I think, you know, that, that's, that's an example of how frustration is a good thing, but there are some people who have the, the threshold that people can tolerate is different. And some people have, and this is what more recently people have referred to as grit. Um, to be honest, I think grit in many ways is just a repackaging of resiliency, which people have been talking about for a long time, but, um, you know, and that is that some people are just, some people are better at tolerating frustration and some people bail early or get too angry early and turn it in on yourself, on themselves, as you said, and, and some people don't. Um, there is, we should point out, there is an upside to quitting things, by the way. Um, and that's, there's a, there is good reason sometimes. Grip can be a problem. Um, but uh, I, I think one of the things that I do think is a way I like to think about it to go back to an exercise example is, you know, the same way for a human being to become more physically fit, they have to, 
they have to challenge themselves physically. I think the same thing's true to become more emotionally fit, if you will, you have to challenge yourself emotionally. You have to say, I'm going to do a hard thing and it's going to make me uncomfortable. And it might even hurt a little bit, but that's how I change. And sometimes that means I'm going to wallow in some sadness for a little bit. And I'm going to think about some things I don't necessarily like thinking about, or I'm going to do a thing that's scary. And I'm not going to like it, but I'm going to do that thing because that's how I can kind of get used to that. And sometimes it means I'm going to do something frustrating and I'm going to sort of suffer through this difficult chore, but I'm going to do it in a way that, that continues to work for me. I'm not going to keep doing it and keep doing it, keep doing it. I'm just going to try the hard thing for a little while. And then I'm going to back off and give myself a break. And uh, I'm just going to take a few minutes and then I'm going to get back to it, you know? And um, it, it's funny because I am, um, I do this a lot when I'm, I'll, I'll do this in the moment when I'm trying to do something and it's really hard, like something, like, I don't know, putting together a piece of furniture or something like that. And I'm, and I'm getting stuck or I'm feeling frustrated and I'll just stop and I'll set down the tool and I'll say, I, and I'll just like take a deep breath. And it's funny because my wife We'll, all, we'll if she's there, we'll say, is it just not working? As if to say like, okay, so we're quitting. And, and for me, it's like, no, this is just what I do so I can try again, you know? And it's, um, I think that there is something about that, like being able to tolerate frustration and that that's a skill that, I mean, yes, there's a, there's an innate piece there's a part of, there are just some people who are just born more willing to do it. And then there are other people who you really have to work at it. You have to say, I need to, I need to sort of suffer through a little bit to get better at tolerating frustration. So I'm wondering, since you mentioned that there is an upside to quitting, is there mm -hmm. a formula, a rule of thumb, a, a way that you've draw that line between I need to put up with a little bit more frustration and it's time to just pack it in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. It's interesting. So this is, this has actually come out with some of the, the grit work, you know, as people were talking and really focusing on grit and how, um, how important grit was as a concept. Other people came along and said, you know, actually grit can be bad sometimes because there are projects that it, it's actually smartest to quit. Um, you know, and so, uh, the example that I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with as well is like, you know, working on a dissertation or something that, you know, there comes a point where you hate your topic so much, the thing you've chosen so much that it might actually be smart, even though you've sunk some things into it, it might actually be smarter for you to switch to something else. Um, and, I, and and to, to throw in the towel on that and start over because you've got so much left that you've got to do and do you really want to suffer through that? Um, I think the, the, the trying to figure out what that point is, to me, it ends up being really contextual. It depends on how much you have left of the project, do you think you can finish or do you think it's impossible? How miserable are you uh, as, you're, as you're working on it? Um, I, I think those are things that some people, that, you know, some people just sort of know in the moment, but I don't know what the formula is for knowing. 
uh, what that is. I know. And I'll, <laughs> and I'll be honest, if I, if I error, I err on the side of completing a project I shouldn't. Uh, so I, I, I think I've barely ever even set down a book that I, like I've read, I finished a whole bunch of really long books that I hated simply because I was like, I feel like I got to finish this thing. Right. So I, I'm, I'm one to suffer through, through projects. Yeah, I'm always a little bit amazed when I see reviews on Amazon of a book that's like, I didn't even finish this. I'm like, wow, really? I think the first time I yes. saw one of those, it's like, you could do that? Yeah. <laughs> I actually had a friend tell me once, you know, it's, it's okay. You're reading this for your own pleasure. If you want to just set it down, you can. <laughs> and yeah. I thought, you know, that's not bad advice. That, that'd school, probably be smarter. I think school yeah. trains us to think that we have to finish all the books, but, but yeah. yeah, we it's don't. Same thing And with all the movies. projects. Yeah. yeah. Same thing with movies. There are some movies that I very much wish I hadn't continued watching. So. Yeah. Well, I want to make sure that we have time to talk about, you know, channeling anger into creativity and possibly also, since you mentioned it, like the overlap between anger and curiosity, if you've found any, because <laughs> now I'm wondering. Yeah, so let's let's talk about the the creativity piece first because I am so I actually just had a really really great conversation with an artist that I work with. Um, uh, she works at UW Green Bay. Her name's Dr. Allison uh, Gates, and she is um, she and I have been we're just good friends and we like to talk about this stuff. And we recently talked about. Um, uh, how artists can channel their art and channel their anger into art. And she's really, one of the things that's really interesting because I'm not an artist to hear from her is she reminds me how much work it is to create a work of art and how many different, different, you know, iterations a project may go through. And it's much like writing, you know, that, that there's, they do lots of pieces before they get to the final one. And, so she said for her, she recognized that art is oftentimes, uh, excuse me, anger is oftentimes that spark that that's initiates the desire to want to do a thing. But that is actually can be really hard to muster up and keep that anger going all the way through the project. That it's, that that is just not, in so many ways, that's not really doable, especially because she said also a lot of her work requires a level of focus that is hard to do when you're really angry. But she also pointed out, and, and this is interesting because I naively hadn't really thought about this in, as art, but she talked a lot about protest uh, art. Um, she talked about sculptures and protest signs and the pink hats at the women's march and things like that and all of these things as as works of art that people spend considerable time and effort on and how many of those things were motivated by anger and I thought that was really fascinating and really interesting to think about these so many of these really really beautiful works. Uh, murals and things like that that are that are motivated by anger where anger was the spark that initiated it and yeah it, it might not have been the energy you used to finish the thing or to, to build the thing but it definitely um uh it definitely motivated the 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 creation of it in the first place um as for the curiosity piece i you know 
I think it's not so much that those two emotions are linked. Other than that, I think that they, the thing that they have in common that I'm really intrigued by is that anytime I think about an emotion, I think about what, what is its roots in our evolutionary history. And for it to exist, it, it gave us, it either is just ran, a random byproduct of our existence, or it gave us some sort of evolutionary advantage. And for things like anxiety and anger, that is obvious. For things, for something like sadness, it's a little less obvious, but it's definitely there. Um, but for curiosity, I got curious to, to know why and, and how, what adaptive value it held. And so I really started reading a lot about it as an emotion and what it, um, why it was of value. And, you know, it became pretty, uh, pretty obvious once I started paying attention and thinking about early ancestors and things like that, that, that the desire to explore and to learn more about your surroundings offered a very real survival benefit. It, it meant that you might find food that you didn't know was there or a better shelter or a place, a place to escape or a safer space. And that, you know, that, that ultimately, and this just comes back to a, a philosophy I have about life and about education. And that is that human beings never know what we need to know until we need to know it. And that, just knowing things is inherently better than not knowing them. And it means that you can use them in, in some way or at some time when you don't expect to need it and it might end up saving your life. Um, and so the, for me, why I'm interested in both, I, I'm interested in anger as a, as a therapist. I'm, I'm interested in curiosity as a teacher, because when I think about my classes and the learning experiences I set up, I've set them, I've set them all up at this point with the idea that we need to, we need to use curiosity as the motivator, as to think about how we can motivate students that way, using that innate desire to know stuff. When you say that, it sounds to me as a coach and a former teacher, like that seems like it should be so obvious and yet it's not, right? right? We set it up as you need to learn this, not mm -hmm. how can I make you curious enough to want to figure it out, which is so much more powerful than you need to learn this. Right. You know, I, I one day had a terrible sort of epiphany that one that was a little bit of an existential crisis that I, I went to, I actually went to talk to my, my dean about it almost immediately and said, here's the thing. If a group of people came to me and said, hey, Ryan, we want you to teach us something, I probably would not set up that experience the way I set up my class. But my class is essentially just a group of people coming to me and saying, hey, Ryan, we want you to teach us something. <laughs> and but I, I probably wouldn't sit down with them and say, okay, well, here, let's hammer out a syllabus and come up with some learning outcomes. And here's a bunch of rubrics. And, you know, I'm gonna, that, that's not what I would do. And so it really, you know, the, the university is going to make me do some of those things because for various reasons, accreditation and such. But I've decided that within 
the class, the parts that I can control, I want to frame more around that first thing. I want to, I want to build my class around, okay, a group of people has come to talk to me. They want to, they've told me they want to learn something. Let's, let's frame the experience around that to the best that we can. And I'm sure that that's meant a totally different way of approaching everything you're doing. It does. Um, I mean, it it really does because it means, um, one, it means listening a a lot more than I think I was. Um, It means uh, trying to, part of the biggest challenge is that you end up having students who come to you with a very different idea of what a class is like than the class you want to set up. That they've been going to classes that are like the, the model I, I, did, I was using. And now you have to try to get them to think about it differently. And so they're the ones begging me for a rubric, or they're the ones who want to know what the learning outcomes are. And, and so they come to me and say, tell me exactly how you want this assignment to be, because for the last three years, that's what they've gotten, or, you know, and, and so it's harder, it's harder to undo some of that. And, and it makes them a little anxious when I do. Do they adapt to that relatively well once they get used to it? Because I remember when I was teaching, and, and so this conversation happened maybe 15 years ago, you know, around the, the lunch table, and I was at a private 6 through 12 school. You know, the, the feeling overwhelmingly was that an awful lot of kids just did not have the intellectual curiosity. They just wanted to know the answer. Even though we were not standardized testing like the public schools were, there was still that, I don't care why, just tell me the answer kind of feeling. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm curious to know how that's yeah. worked for you. So, you know, I have so many things to say. Um, <laughs> let me, that's okay, go let, for it. <laughs> let, let me start by saying, um, I think the more, and I say this as someone, you will, you will be hard-pressed to find anyone in the world who is more type A than I am. And so I, I admit that I am slandering myself with this statement. <laughs> the more type A a student is, the more they struggle with a sort of looser approach um, because they want to know what exactly they need to do to get that A. And that means show me the rubric, show me the learning outcomes, tell me the page length, tell me the, you know, the font size, tell me all that stuff so that I can do exactly what you want. And they don't like hearing, I I want you to tell me what you want to give me. You know, they they don't want to hear that. And so that's the the first problem. And it's not their fault. I I don't blame them for, for approaching things. It's just, it's a harder thing to undo. Um, I think but the other thing I want to say is, you know, when people say that students don't have the intellectual curiosity, curiosity, it is, you know, it's both a trait, and, like any emotion or like any phenomenon, it is both a trait and a state. And yes, some people are more curious than others, but all students are curious. All students are curious. And you know that because if you walked up to them and said, hey, did you hear what Ariana Grande did? <laughs> they, would, they would say, wait, what? And they'd start Googling the answer before you finish the sentence, right? And so they, you just have to figure out how to draw that curiosity out of them. It's not, they're all curious. I, I, I realize, by the way, I probably used a terrible example. I'm sure there's someone much younger I should have used. <laughs> But, but, you know, there's, 
that they have they've been taught not to care about the stuff we're trying to teach them. It's not, some of them have, I should say. And it, it's not that they're not innately curious. They are. It's just, we have to find a way to, to, to bring that curiosity out. And the good news is curiosity is actually a much, much easier emotion to induce than a lot of other ones. It's when you identify gaps in, and this is why I made the joke about, about Ariana Grande is because when you, when you identify gaps in people's knowledge and you make it obvious to them, they want to fill it. I mean, that's the, that's the way it works. It's just helping them recognize what those gaps are. That is, that is so important. And, um, you know, and that's, that's the best thing about young kids, by the way, is how, because they know they have all those gaps and they desperately want to fill it. That's why they ask the question why all the time. Oh yeah. Right? It's, it's, you know, the, everywhere they look is this sense of wonder. I, some of that just goes away because they're learning more of some of it. We just beat out of them with a, with a, yeah. a system that doesn't help. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, when, when that lament was coming up, it was in the context of, you know, what, what has done this to these kids? You know, it seems unnatural that, that we should be working so hard just to get them to ask a basic question. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, I think, I think that the whole standardized testing thing and probably other things, you Mm -hmm. know, everything is so result focused and nothing is really about process anymore when so much of life is actually process based. So, right. So, yeah. But I'm also, I, I've been kind of startled, I guess. That might not really be the right word, surprised for sure. I've never thought of curiosity as an emotion before. Yeah. I, I, I get that. And I think, um, and, and part of the reason it, it feels like, a um it feels so cognitive right it feels so so rooted in your thoughts and and we don't necessarily think about i mean you know at the same time like so imagine you you're watching netflix and you're watching one of your favorite shows and then you get to the point at the end and it ends on a cliffhanger and now the smart thing might be to go to bed, right? Because it's late <laughs> and you're tired. And then you decide because it ended on a cliffhanger, you say, oh, but I can do just one more episode, right? And that's that feeling taking over your rational mind, right? It's the, it's that True. The, the deprivation of knowledge is the thing that, you know, or, or feeling deprived of, of information and leads to a craving or a desire to, to fill those gaps. And so, and it's funny because it's, we see it in all these different places. We, we see it in, you know, clickbait is deeply rooted in this awareness that our emotions will take over our rational mind. I know when I click on clickbait that it is clickbait and I still do it yeah. because I want to know how bad is number seven, right? And so, <laughs> so you know, it, it's... Um, we can one way of defining curiosity as an emotion is to the the feeling state of being deprived information and the the desire to have that information 
Yeah. And for some of us, even if we did manage to go to bed after the cliffhanger, no sleep would happen. Yep. So still, yeah. still thinking about it. I'm better off taking another hour and finding out the answer before I go to bed than I am yes. trying to puzzle it out all night instead yeah. of sleeping. Yeah. It's the same. It's the same thing with, um, with, with the, with a great book, right? When you're getting there and you keep thinking I should go to bed, I should go to bed, but only a hundred pages left or whatever. So. The difference there is that eventually I will drop the book or the Kindle on my face and fall asleep <laughs> with the light on. <laughs> yeah. I will tell you as a parent, there is no better feeling in the world than going in to my kid's room after when they've fallen asleep reading a book. It's the greatest uh, thing. It's like, you know, that they were just clamoring to try and stay awake as they were reading and just couldn't do it. So it's like, that's a really good book. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's high praise for authors for sure. Yes. Even if you know, happened to me, I think just last week, I woke up at like 2.30 and the light was on. I'm like, oops, I did it again. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, well, I really appreciate this conversation. It's been totally fascinating in ways that I didn't expect, which is always my favorite kind. So thank you very much for coming and talking to me this evening. Uh, thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. That's our show for this week. Thanks again to my guest, Ryan Martin. If you know someone who would benefit from this episode, please do pass it on. And don't forget to leave a review to help others find the show. Thanks so much. You can find show notes, the six creative beliefs that are screwing you up, and more at fycuriosity.com. I'd also love for you to join the conversation on Instagram. You'll find me at fycuriosity. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. See you next time.